2: You guys know that I don't watch everything I should, and I don't watch everything I talk about. I talked endlessly about Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie, when it came out, and I kept promising you I would see it and then follow up with some commentary after seeing it, and I never saw it. I could never bring myself to watch it. Likewise, I never watched the Two Girls One Cup video a million years ago. I read about it, I talked about it, I wrote about it, but I didn't feel like I had to watch it because I knew what was in there right? I'd read about it. I, I I knew it. I didn't have to then sit down and watch it. And I've taken the same tack with the Planned Parenthood secretly recorded, manipulatively edited videos that have suddenly put Planned Parenthood back in the crosshairs of anti-choice Republicans who have been fighting for decades to defund Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood's budget, about 40% of it, comes from federal funding. And let's remember what Planned Parenthood does. Well, I should probably tell you what these videos are quickly if you are not familiar with the shitstorm that they've kicked off. Planned Parenthood makes available to researchers fetal tissue from abortions with the consent of the patient. The person, the woman going in for the abortion can opt to donate the fetal tissue to science and to research. This did not used to be controversial this donating of fetal tissue. Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who is right now out there screaming and yelling about how he's going to defund Planned Parenthood, voted for the bill that legalized donating tissues from aborted fetuses to science for research. This was something that had broad bipartisan support 20, 30 years ago, the attitude being that Even if you opposed abortion, that some good may come from abortions if these tissues are used in scientific research. And there have been breakthroughs around certain eye diseases, uh, MS, and other important ongoing research because of the stem cells that are available or that can be made available from these tissues when they are donated by the patient at the patient's request. In much the same way that a family member can donate, can make the decision to donate the organs and tissues of a loved one who's dying or dead or clinically dead. What the videos recorded, these secret recordings, are Planned Parenthood officials, Planned Parenthood doctors, meeting with people posing as companies that buy fetal tissues for research. And the scammers, the people who are posing as these, these uh, as representatives from these companies, try to goad the Planned Parenthood employees into regarding the fetal tissue as, uh, as a profit generator. And you see in the videos, and I've read all about them beat by beat, you see the Planned Parenthood officials deflect all offers of money and even joke about the fact that they are not profiting from these sales. That the money that Planned Parenthood gets is for handling and processing and shipping, and that is it. They do not profit from the sale of tissues from aborted fetuses. This has kicked off a national firestorm, these manipulatively edited videos, and has brought us back to a place we've been before, which is another attempt, yet another attempt, to defund Planned Parenthood, to hurt American women, period, the end, to hurt American women. Abortions. Defunding Planned Parenthood is not defunding abortions. Abortions are 3% of what Planned Parenthood does. 35% of what they do? Contraception. 35% 35% sexually transmitted disease, infection, testing, and treatment. Cancer screenings and prevention, 16%. Other women's health services, 10%. And abortions, 3%. So taking federal funding, defunding Planned Parenthood, yanking the 40% of Planned Parenthood's budget that comes from federal grants, that would be the same federal government that last year awarded $76 million in grants to research. On fetal tissues just in 2014, that same federal government, if it yanks its money from Planned Parenthood at the same time that it's funding fetal tissue-based research, if they yank their funding from Planned Parenthood for providing the fetal tissues that are used in the research the federal government funds, it's not ending abortion. It's not defunding abortion. It's defunding contraception, cancer screening, sexually transmitted disease prevention, and testing and treatment. It's defunding other women's health services. Mostly 97% of the defunding is going to be all of these other services that save the lives of countless American women every year. So in these secretly recorded videos, you saw people, you saw Planned Parenthood officials, Planned Parenthood doctors speaking with other people that they thought they had been told were in the same field, medical field, handling fetal tissue. And they were speaking bluntly. They were talking shop. The way cops talk to cops and politicians talk to politicians and newspaper people talk to newspaper people tends to be blunter, bluer than when you talk to people who are not in your profession, not in your field. Amanda Marcott wrote about this uh, aspect of the videos for Slate. And Amanda Marcotte has been providing terrific coverage of the ongoing Planned Parenthood scandal, including the vote this week to defund Planned Parenthood that the Senate just took. The Senate led by Mitch McConnell, who – a couple of decades ago, voted for fetal tissue research, voted for this. Two decades ago, now Mitch McConnell is leading the charge to defund Planned Parenthood based on the reality of fetal tissue research. Anyway, Amanda McCart wrote about this aspect of it, the talking shop aspect of it for slight. As someone who is squeamish, it was extremely difficult for me to listen to these doctors talk about extracting liver, heart, and other parts to be donated to medical research. I nearly fainted when a friend showed me the video of her knee operation once. But people who work in medicine for a living do, in fact, become inured to the gore in a way that can seem strange to those of us who aren't regularly exposed to it. The doctors in Planned Parenthood also thought they were speaking to people in the profession who would be similarly accustomed to this sort of thing. Abortion is gross, no doubt about it, Marcotte goes on. It becomes grosser the later in pregnancy it gets. But so is heart surgery. So is childbirth, for that matter. We don't deny people who need help in those cases because the help is gross, nor should we deny people that help when it comes to needing abortion. We also shouldn't deny women who want to donate fetal or embryonic remains to science any more than we would deny someone who wants to be an organ donor, even though the latter is also quite gross to ponder. These videos and the impact they've had and the stories written about them have forced us to ponder the gory, messy reality of abortion. And once again, it's feeding into this narrative of Planned Parenthood doctors and uh, abortion providers as some sort of – as monsters. The headline, the attack, is that they are profiting from abortion when you actually read the transcripts of the videos or you watch the videos, if that's what you'd prefer to do. And it's quite clear throughout that they are not profiting from the sales of these tissues. And they are knocking down offers to profit from the sales of these tissues from these anti-choice activists posing as – Beetle tissue company buyers, right? And all of this is feeding into this bullshit attempt again to defend Planned Parenthood again, because the Republican agenda, as we saw when the Republicans seized control of state legislatures all across the country in 2010, the Republican agenda has been to attack abortion, trap legislation, ultrasounds, vaginal wands. Rick Perry successfully closed three quarters of the abortion clinics in Texas. But it's not just abortion that drives them crazy, as we have seen on the concurrent attacks on access to birth control and contraceptives. That ultimately this is about the Republican, the opposition, right-wing conservative nuts to women controlling their own reproductive lives, their own lives, period, their own reproductive lives, their own health. Because they know when they defund Planned Parenthood, they aren't preventing abortion, they're not defunding abortion. They know, and the target is also to defund contraception, to defund treatment for sexually transmitted infections. Remember, these are the same assholes, these right-wing anti-choice assholes, the same people who opposed the introduction of a vaccine for HPV. And the reason they opposed that, the introduction of that vaccine was because they liked the fact that women were dying of cervical cancer from HPV infections earlier in life. They used those deaths from cervical cancer related to HPV to argue for abstinence education, And against sex and defunding Planned Parenthood because of these videos means defunding contraception. It means defunding vaccinations for HPV for women, which they opposed all along. Cancer screening and prevention, that's vaccines for HPV. They're going after that too. They didn't want those coming online in the first place. And this is going to allow them to take it out. We have to stand with Planned Parenthood now. When it's a little difficult, when it's a little awkward, when they're under fire, we need to stand with Planned Parenthood. I stand with Planned Parenthood, and you should too. I'm going to make a donation to Planned Parenthood today, and I'm going to ask you to make a donation to Planned Parenthood today. Go to plannedparenthood.org and click on Donate. And this I've said this before. If you've been listening to the show long enough uh, to hear me come to Planned Parenthood's defense in the past, you've heard me say this. You don't have to donate $500. You don't have to donate $1,000. You don't have to donate $25. If all you can spare is 5 bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks, go donate it. Go make that donation because Planned Parenthood can not only point to the amount of money it raises from the public as evidence of its support, its broad support, but the number of donors is another figure that really matters. Another data point that really matters in defending Planned Parenthood and Planned Parenthood in defending itself and supporters of Planned Parenthood defending Planned Parenthood. Both those numbers have equal weight, equal value, the amount raised from the public and the number of donors, private donors out there in the public who support Planned Parenthood. So even if you can't inflate the numbers of dollars that they've raised, you can inflate the number of donors that they have, the number of supporters that they have who are motivated enough to donate. So even if you can only spare five bucks, make that donation. Stand with Planned Parenthood now. Now is when it really matters most. Terry and I are going to make a donation today to Planned Parenthood, and we'd like you to join us. Plannedparenthood.org. Click Donate. All right, coming up today on the Savage Lovecast, tons of your questions. And on the subscription magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can find at savagelovecast.com, Vichu, Dr. Vichu, a regular guest, is joining us to speak about some alarming butt stuff that even I, after 30 years of being alarmed by butt stuff, was unfamiliar with on today's show.
3: Dan, my uh, long-term partner about eight months ago, And I was giving him head, asked me to bite down on his cot really hard. I did. It was really fun. He got really turned on. I got really turned on. Um, So it's been something that we've been doing um, for the past eight months. And I wondered if uh, if this is going to hurt him. Um, I bite down on the shaft. Um, I don't draw blood, but I put a lot of pressure. And uh, I just just don't want to hurt him. It's a lot of fun for both of us. And uh, so what
1: are your thoughts?
2: Here's a funny story. My uncle uh, was in a really, really popular, famous, regional rock band in the 70s. They were really big on the West Coast, big enough that they had all sorts of groupies. I haven't talked to my uncle recently, so I'm not going to disclose his name or the name of the band, but I bet he hears this podcast and then he's going to ask me to disclose both in a future show. So hang in there and you'll find out the name of the band. But anyway, he – uh in the 70s, he was a rock star and he met lots of groupies and groupies would throw themselves at him. And he liked to have his dick sucked. Weird. A rock star who likes to have his dick sucked. But my uncle liked to have his dick sucked in a very particular way. He liked to have his dick bitten. He liked to have his balls slapped. And that worked for him. And I don't know why when I was 15 years old and he was living in uh, my house with my family in Chicago, he told me about this. But he did. I think he sensed that I was a butting homo and he was reaching out. We were trying to bond over blowjobs somehow at three or four o'clock in the morning when I would sneak it back into the house from the gay bars and my uncle would be up in the kitchen eating. But the funny part of the story is that if he discovered that the groupie blowing him was a brand new groupie, uh, somebody perhaps who had never given a blowjob before in her life, uh, he would tell her as he instructed her to bite his dick and slap his balls that all, all men liked this. This is how all men liked Head. And that she should just do this in the future. And guys will think she's great at this sucking dick thing. And my uncle would do this knowing that with groupies and the way that whole scene worked in the 70s in California, the very next people she blew were likely to be his bandmates. It was a different era. It was a different time. Uh, the moral of the story here, though, for you, caller, is my uncle didn't conclude these stories. With, and now my dick is broken and does not work. So I'm going to infer from my uncle's own personal experience with this blowjob preference that your – or this style of blowjob preference that your partner shares, this biting, that it is not going to permanently damage his dick. The erectile chambers, the corpora cavernosa, uh, they can be damaged and usually when you read about somebody damaging their dick or breaking their dick, it's about a bend – It's about the dick being somebody's jumping up and down on your dick, slamming their ass or pussy up and down your dick, and the angle gets off and the dick is bent in half and you can pop or damage or rupture the corporo cavernosa, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, the erectile chambers. And that kind of trauma seems to play a a, a role or can contribute to the development of something called Peyronie's disease, which is the buildup of plaque, um, really kind of tense fibrous tissue in the penis that can make erections bent or painful or bent and painful. So don't bend his dick in half, keep the bites relatively gentle, and I think you'll be okay. It's an anecdote, not a data point, but I think your husband's going to be okay. That's my hunch.
4: Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old, formerly straight, now questioning my sexuality woman. I guess the reason I'm calling it is because I recently had my first encounter with a woman. Going forward, I just I think that that's something I want to pursue. I, I haven't thought about it before. Now, what I really wanted, I've never been really happy in a heterosexual relationship, and now I'm thinking I want to pursue me becoming and embracing my homosexuality. So I guess I was just wondering, do you have any advice for a woman or man? I guess going forward. Um, wanting to pursue homosexuality, do you have any game plans? How do I meet women? How do I know if someone 's gay? This is all very new for me. Any information you could give about starting off with a homosexual relationship would be very helpful.
2: Joining him in the studio to help field this question because i don 't think that I have all of the answers for you is Aaron Aaron is a Baron that I know through work. And uh, thank you for allowing me to con you into coming on the show. Thank you. So she's interested in pursuing her first homosexual relationships. Homosexual. The first thing you have to know about homosexual relationships is that you don't have to call them homosexual relationships. You can call them relationships.
0: Indeed. Yeah. I am actually really excited for you. Good for you. I think. It's normal to be totally nervous about this kind of thing.
2: And to pronounce homosexuality over and over and over <laughs> again. Uh,
0: yeah, but I think, you know, treat it just like you would as you have been. Just go with your gut.
2: But let's answer her specific
0: questions. Okay. Uh,
2: how do you meet women who uh, are interested in your homosexuality?
0: Are you in a big city? Leave the house. Leave the house. Yeah. Go online, go out to bars, go out to gay parties, and go now out to with queer phone- parties. Now
2: with phones, you can do both at once. You can leave the house with your phone and go online in a bar. Best
0: of both worlds.
2: Best of all the world. And how do you know if a woman is a lesbian or a gay or a homosexual?
0: You know, you gotta you got to go into that with confidence. You got to go into that if you see someone that's catching your eye, like – Go up to her, talk to her, say hi, smile, flirt, just like you would with a guy. If she flirts back, then you know. If she doesn't seem to be flirting back, and she's probably not into you. So
2: this is advice for women who are interested in women, but this isn't advice that you would give a straight guy. Just anywhere you see a pretty girl that you think you might be interested in, well, just go flirt? See, You're this just is a sick fe-
0: female privilege here. Oh, is it? <laughs> I don't know. Is that how this
2: works? <laughs> or, or is this framed on, you know, get into a queer space, go to a queer show, join some queer clubs, get into the queer neighborhood. And if you see somebody who looks like a lady you might be interested in.
0: Yeah, don't be shy.
2: Who has several dozen tattoos. That's usually a sign.
0: <laughs> tattoos, um, belts that are clipped on the hip, mm-hmm. uh, cargo shorts, tight ponytails. I don't know. I'm just kidding. You're
2: just describing um. yourself. You're just inviting <laughs> her to come to Seattle, find my you, name's Aaron. and flirt no, with you. I
0: am happily happily involved. Do you remember
2: um, when you were her? Your first same-sex relationships, thinking, all right, yeah, this homosexuality my, is for me.
0: My, my – my, First relationship was in college with my RA. Um, that was it was fun. Basically, our first time hanging out, we held hands watching the Heath Ledger movie, uh, first night, Night's Tale.
2: Oh wow! It was really
0: bad, That's but we held hands and I was going nuts, so it was crazy. Um, Did you
2: imprint on Heath Ledger then?
0: Yeah, RIP, man.
2: It, <laughs> RIP. <right, R. laughs> it's too bad.
0: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if I have any, any particular advice that's other than just, just go with your gut and be respectful and, and get
2: out there. And it's, it's actually not yeah. that, it's not that fucking complicated. Like, and it's not that different, the relationships. I mean, there's some sort of gender differences because of male privilege and, and certain things about being guys that can like play out in same sex male relationships. There's certain stuff about girls that you see playing out in same sex lady relationships. That you have to control for. Like guys, I think you have to control for intimacy issues and fear of commitment. Because, and it's not to say all guys have those problems. And, and and like women sometimes, lesbian relationships have to control for too much intimacy too soon. Lesbian bed death. Do you think
0: that's actually a thing? I don't believe in lesbian bed death. I think that's –
2: Because you're still killing it.
0: Foolishness. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's a thing. Um, You know – I've actually, I've been, so I've been reading this book. I've been reading the Emily Nagoski book, The Come As You Are. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually been really interesting because she's talking about how it's not necessarily a drive. Like sex isn't really a drive. It's more in the context and how you, how you place yourself within it and.
2: I think that's more true for women as part of the argument she's making in that book, is that? Not
0: yeah, she talks about it in terms of which doesn't really bode well for her comparison to it being a drive, but she talks about it in uh, terms of accelerators and brakes mm-hmm. and you know cis men for the most part have pretty sensitive accelerators while cis women for the most part tend to have more sensitive brakes. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and there are, there are people who argue that that's biology. there's also people who argue that's culture. And is influenced by a little by, bit of
0: column A and a little bit of column B,
2: influenced by millennia of sexual violence. And women have to be a little bit more careful, cautious, and thoughtful because intimate partner violence, rape, uh, also being impregnated, all those things fall disproportionately on the shoulders of women. So women are going to be less likely to leap for fear of these potential negative consequences than men who don't have to fear them as much and so aren't really approaching sex often with new partners from a defensive crouch they can go into them with a certain sort of confidence and expectation that I'm not going to be assaulted.
0: Right. I mean,
2: well, we've gone into a dark place from this woman's <laughs> question. How did, we, how did we get here? <laughs> Back to uh, going out. So there are lots of people I hear from young lesbians, young gay guys, uh, and by people who just don't know who, who think that it's hard to go out there and find a partner. It's hard to find the queers that the queers are the needles in the hetero haystack. How do you find them? And it's, I don't think – you know, maybe I had that fear too years ago. I can't remember. But it really isn't that hard to find the queers.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's it's any harder to find – I would say it's probably easier to find the right woman than it would be to find the right men. That seems more like a needle in the haystack. I me. think you
2: have a bias there as a lesbian who's not looking for men.
0: <laughs> oh, you may – Right
2: there, Miss Andre, Miss, it. this is not a safe space for me anymore. My own I'm podcast a proud studio. Misandrist. Are you?
0: No, do you have one of those
2: male tears coffee cups?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I want one of those too. Yeah, you should get one. I like
2: to see boys cry as much as the next crazy faggot. <laughs> so leave the house, flirt with people you think are hot. It's not that complicated. One thing I want to walk back for her though, like she says that one of the reasons she thinks she may be a homosexual is because she has been unhappy in her heterosexual relationships. And it's possible, caller, that you are bisexual. And don't look at your failed heterosexual relationships as evidence that you are not going to be a successful heterosexual or a successful bisexual. Because I promise you, as you move into lesbian land or homosexual relationships, you will have failed homosexual relationships too. You will get hurt in homosexual relationships too.
0: Yeah, and that's just sort of a negative spot to come at it from. Like you're coming at it from. I've been like, hurt
2: by men, so I'm rushing into the arms yeah. of women with this expectation that I will never be hurt in the arms of women. And Aaron is here to tell you. You might. Might. <laughs> you might. You
0: might. You, you probably will. will. Yeah. You will. That's true. That's true. But I'm. I'm just trying to say, like, don't. Don't do something because. Something else made you feel bad. Right. Do something because you want to do something that makes you feel
2: bad. Yeah, homosexuality if, is not a consolation prize for unsuccessful or unhappy heterosexuals or bisexuals.
0: No, that's not how it works.
2: It's not how it works. There was just a thing on Queer Tea this week, the, the, the queer blog, uh, that I enjoy reading very much, particularly when they're kicking holes in me, um, saying, you know, with these posts from people on some anonymous posting site about how unhappy they are, they wish they weren't gay because they've gotten hurt in gay relationships, and the apparently the assumption is if they were in straight relationships, they would never get hurt. It's only gay relationships that you can get hurt in and that it's faulty – as faulty coming from that angle as it is coming from the caller's angle, which is I've been hurt in straight relationships. I'm going to go have gay ones now as if you're not going to get hurt in gay ones. And gay people who think, oh, gay people are horrible to me. I wish it was straight. Then life would be so easy and wonderful and I would never get hurt. No, bullshit. Everybody gets hurt.
0: Grass is always greener.
2: Ass is always greener. (laughs) In my studio, the GR is silent.
0: All right. Fair enough. (laughs)
2: Thank you so much for coming on and helping us answer this question. Dan.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm a straight 29-year-old in an open marriage, and I have a few partners, and everything's going really well on that front. I'm happy and satisfied with my marriage and still generally very fulfilled. My question actually concerns my professional life. I'm in a graduate program, and a few of my close friends know I'm open, but overall I'm trying to keep it fairly secret because I don't know how it will affect my professional future as an academic. I've recently had a major problem with a male friend which whom I, with whom I used to be very close for reasons that he refused to explain to me. After I came up to him as poly, he slowly blocked me out of his friend group, at one point telling me he thought my husband and I needed a divorce, and then a few months later suddenly blocking me without Facebook, from Facebook and not explaining why again. I think his discomfort with this situation says more about him than about me, since he's single and I think lonely and probably very jealous, um, because I know open marriages are seen as having your cake and eating it too. But at any rate, it has been very painful to lose such a close friend, and it makes things very awkward at school, since he's in a powerful position amongst graduate students and controls much of the funding. I'm supposed to have a working relationship with him, and at the same time as he blocks my Facebook and doesn't respond to my texts, he'll email me about professional things as though nothing is wrong. I don't want to make a big hoop on the community because he's generally loved by everyone else and I would risk disclosing my private life with my husband to everyone. I'm also not con- but I'm also not convinced that he isn't sharing my private life with everyone. So I guess, guess my question is this. Do I just keep pretending nothing is wrong and deal with this guy as a professional colleague or should I try to confront him? Should I call him out in a more public setting or launch some sort of formal complaint? Should I just keep quiet because I know I'm very lucky and kind of privileged to have such a fulfilling sexual life? And I guess losing friends is just one of the prices I have to pay. Um, And perhaps this is relevant to mention that the guy, this guy is actually not the only close friend I've lost to this. Um, So any thoughts you might have or advice would be greatly appreciated.
2: In some ways, I think Polly now is where gay was in about 1982, where coming out as gay then uh, to friends meant losing friends. And it didn't just mean losing friends. It can still mean losing friends. But the assumption was I'm coming out as gay. I'm going to lose a bunch of friends. A bunch of people who thought they liked me and that I liked but they didn't really know who I was. They're going to find out who I really am and then reassess how they feel about me and I'm going to lose these friends. And it's going to be worth it because I'd rather be who I am and not have these friends than – be in the closet for the rest of my life to keep these friends. So, you as Polly and other people who are Polly who are coming out now as Polly, that is so threatening, polyamory, to some people who are straight that it's going to cost you some friends. Just like the gay thing was so threatening to some people who were straight 30 years ago that it cost gay people who came out then friends. Certainly, it was even worse in 72 and worse than 52. But it gets better by dint of people coming out and people getting to know people who were gay then or poly now and overcoming their anxieties, fears, hangups, misconceptions, preconceptions about who gay or and or poly people are. So you are paying the dues that must be paid in a way. You can think of it that way, that you are right now doing the heavy lifting for poly people 20, 30 years in the future and for yourselves 10, 15, 20 years in the future. You are helping to make it better, not just for the poly couples and people coming after you, but also ultimately for yourself. Now to the problem with this particular friend that you've lost. I don't think you should confront him. I don't think you should file some sort of complaint. I don't think you have grounds to file some sort of complaint. He isn't your friend anymore, but otherwise it sounds like he's treating you professionally. He's not excluding you from emails. He's keeping you in the loop about work and school matters. He's keeping it professional. He doesn't want to be your friend anymore. And that's shitty. And his reasons for not wanting to be your friend are fucked up, but he's not obligated to be your friend. So instead of thinking about retaliating against him by confronting him, calling him out in some public setting, filing some sort of Charges against him with the university because he's what? By the university's code of conduct obligated to be your buddy? No, he's not. I think you reach out to him in sadness, not anger. You reach out to him and say, I miss our friendship. I'm sorry that this news about this truth about me that when shared with you so upset you that it destroyed your ability to, to be my friend. And I, and I miss our friendship. And then you let it go. But you don't reach out and you must be my friend, retaliatory, thunderbolt, hurling anger because he's not obligated to be your friend. You can be sad. You can be hurt. You should communicate that to him. And you should perhaps in that communique, you should express your gratitude for his continuing to treat you professionally. And you should say that you will continue to treat him professionally as well. Adding at the end that you wish you could be more than just colleagues and that you miss your friendship and who knows, maybe he'll come around. Maybe he'll get over it. Maybe he'll meet other academia. Maybe he'll meet other poly people and come to see that his judgment of you, his, uh, cutting you out of his life, his unfriending you was shitty and unnecessary and came from a place of fear and faulty assumptions and he'll come around, which will be a multi year journey perhaps for him, but it's unlikely that he will ever come around if you go at him hammer and tongs. I think you would have a total justification to go after him hammer and tongs, confront him, call him out, do whatever you can do if he was punishing you for your private life, if he was harming you academically or professionally. But you don't mention him doing that, you mention him doing the opposite. And unless there's some evidence that he's doing that, the best approach in sadness, not in anger, reach out to him and tell him you miss him.
5: Hi, I'm a 28 year old straight female from the East Coast. And my husband and I have a question uh, related to parenting. Uh, We are new parents. We have a seven month, almost seven month old son. And today I think we may have really screwed up. My husband works late nights. And we don't have a lot of time for sex, obviously. We have a seven-month-old, and by the time he gets home at night, I'm exhausted, and often sex doesn't really happen. Well, we've often been getting kind of horny in the morning, and today when I went to go take a shower, we were kind of feeling frisky, and the baby was up, but we put him in his crib, and let him play with his toys and we had a cookie in the shower in, which is connected to his bedroom. Are we terrible people, terrible parents, or is this just how things work with the new new baby in the family? We want to have a sex positive household and we obviously want to have some kind of sex life. I love my husband and I miss having sex with him. Is there anything else we can do? Any advice?
2: It wasn't that long ago that people fucked in front of their kids all the time, that there were family beds, colonial America, there would be one great big family bed, the pilgrims, one big family bed and mom and dad to make more farmhands might fuck in front of the farmhands that they had already made. Uh, I don't think that people should fuck in front of their seven month old or two year olds or 10 year olds or 17 year olds. But you guys did nothing wrong. Uh, If I were having sex in the shower while my six or seven-month-old or year-old kid was in a crib in the next room, I would perhaps leave the door open, not have music blasting, uh, not have the shower blasting so loud that if the kid was in distress, we would be able to hear it and uh, pull the dicks out and run to the aid of this distressed infant but you did nothing wrong and you did something right. You carved out a little time in the day for a quickie. And that's, you know, some people will say, oh, a terrible thing to set your child aside to go have this unimportant, stupid, meaningless sex. But it's in the best interest of your child for you and your husband to carefully and when you can maintain and sustain and grow your sexual connection. You want to be having orgasms together. You want to be associating one another with pleasure and all that oxy shit flooding into your systems and not just associating each other now with tense negotiations and the grind of parenting. So it was good that you guys did that for each other and it was good that you guys did that for your kid and you should continue to do that for each other and for your kid. Kid wasn't crying, kid wasn't hungry, kid wasn't in distress, kid in a crib for, what, 10 minutes while mommy and daddy or mommy and mommy or daddy and daddy get it off in the shower or elsewhere? Not a problem. Not anything you should feel guilty about, not anything you're doing wrong. Indeed, something you are doing very, very right.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm a 43-year-old gay male, and I can't find peace with my 65-year-old deeply religious mother because of our conflicting views on religion and sexual orientation. We're both incredibly stubborn and have verbally hurt each other for almost 20 years over this issue. She was raised as a Christian, but some preacher converted her to Islam after her divorce when she was weakest and desperately needed something to cling on to. I blame myself for having failed her during that time because the brainwash she consequently received proved to be absolutely impenetrable. I stopped visiting her three years ago after she referred to my sexual orientation as not normal. She almost died of pneumonia earlier this year. She's alone and in a very sad place, relying only on religion to save her. During a very optimistic mood, I made an effort and broke the long period of silence. I invited her over to my house and she was as happy as can be for one day, until I made the mistake to bring up the religion versus sexual orientation topic again. Our dispute quickly escalated because I had hoped that she might have come around and appreciate me more than her religion. I wasn't able to hide my disappointment well enough. Is there any way I can help her without feeling betrayed? Do I have to get over myself and just accept her bigoted view that I'm not normal, that nobody's born this way and that I've made a choice? My inner conflict is tearing me apart because I want nothing more than to help her. But I feel that the price for doing that is just too high. I feel really sorry for what she had to endure in life, but at the same time, I refuse to accept that religion is more important to her than her own son. Our bond is very strong, but I just can't get over the fact that her brainwash seems to trump our love. Thanks for your help.
2: It's wonderful the way religion brings people together, isn't it? It's magic. Your call really breaks my heart, and it goes to show that these sorts of religious, bigoted judgments uh, and Errors about human sexuality don't just hurt young and vulnerable 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old queer kids who are entirely dependent on their parents and vulnerable uh, in the face, very vulnerable um, physically in the face of their parents' bigotry but also can hurt adult queer children who are not vulnerable in the same way but can be emotionally traumatized by these errors by these bigoted, religious, magical, tragical beliefs. What do you owe your mother at 65 Well, and 43? You don't owe her anything, really. Uh, You can love and support her. You can tell her you'll be there for her. And then you can refuse to discuss this topic ever again. I would have a very difficult time being with a parent or a relative who I knew thought these things about me. But if I allowed my love for them as parent to trump my anger or disappointment in their bigoted views of who I am, I would go anyway. I would allow, you know, you're asking, why does your mother allow her religious beliefs to trump her affections for you as a son? And I would say that as a son, if my mother felt the way your mother feels, I would hopefully allow my affection for her as a parent to trump my anger at her religious beliefs. And I would go to her and I would be there as much as I could for her. So long as it's not toxic, so long as she's not lashing out so long as we can say, we will never agree about who I am. And so we are not going to talk about it. I'm not going to listen to you. And then I would get up and go if she went there maliciously, intentionally, if she brought every conversation around to My sinful, sick choice to be gay, I wouldn't subject myself to that. I wouldn't feel obligated to do that as her child. I wouldn't owe her that. Your mother sounds a bit bananas. It sounds like you recognize that she ran from one shitty faith to another shitty faith uh, because she was weak and she needed something, and it was this, and she has clung to it. And it has hurt her and hurt her relationships And in a way, this religion, for her, is like the bottle for the alcoholic. It ain't good for her. She can't give it up. So what do you do? Well, you don't hang out with your drunk parents when they're drunk. You don't have to sit there and take it. You don't have to enable it. You don't have to bring the Jack Daniels to them, and you don't have to drink the Jack Daniels with them. And say to your parents, you know, when you're sober, I'll hang out. When you're sober, I'll see you. And I think you can say to your drunk-on-religion parents, you know, when you're sober, when you're not pounding the table, when you're not bashing the Bible, when you're not waving the Koran around in my face, I will hang out with you. I will see you. We can talk about other things. But if you're going to hit the bottle, if you're going to hit the Bible, if you're going to hit the Koran, I'm out the door. And I'm not going to have a sip myself because I'm not drinking that shit because I don't think it's very good for you or me or anyone. I'm sorry your mother is who she is. I'm sorry she makes you feel bad about who you are. I'm sorry the choice that she made. Religion, oh my God. Religion is a choice. It's so hilariously, transparently, just an issue of projection on the part of religious people when they say sexuality or gender identity is a choice because religion is a choice. And they argue that Sexuality, gender identity shouldn't be protected. They shouldn't even be tolerated because it's a choice. Well, religious people, by dint of proselytizing, admit that religion is a choice. Your mother chose Islam over the faith that she was raised in. If anyone is making a sick, not sick, if anyone is making a destructive choice here, it's your mom. If you haven't said that shit to her already, you can say it to her again in one last blowout where you declared the subject forever and eternally off limits. You are not going to talk about your sexuality with her again, and you're not going to talk about religion with her anymore. You're not going to hit the bottle with her. And if she insists on being drunk in your presence on faith and judgment and bigotry, you are out the door. I know I, I have a good friend who recently had to cut his mother out of his life because after 20 years of a detente around his sexuality, she finally said the wrong thing for the millionth time. And he cut her out of his life because he is not willing to take her faith-based, faith-rationalized abuse anymore. You may reach that point too. I'm not telling you to cut your mother out of your life yet. I'm telling you to cut this stuff off, to cut off these topics, to say, we will not go here. We will not talk about Islam. We will not talk about Christianity. We will not talk about sexuality. We will not talk about choice. If you want to talk about those things, I'm out. If every time I see you, that comes up, I will not see you anymore. Leverage. Your leverage as an adult child over your parents, your parent, is your presence in her life. Use it to leverage from her human decency, consideration, compassion. Don't have to change your mind about her bananas theology where your sexuality is concerned. But you can use your presence to make the time you do spend with her less traumatizing for you. And if she can't do that, if she can't be with you without going there, don't be with her. Send her letters. Send her cards. Send her your regards, but don't spend your time with her.
1: Hi, Dan. in am a Tech savvy at Rescue. I am a 30-year-old gay male calling from Michigan. And then I just need some advice on what to do. I've been seeing this guy for six months. We were really good, really hot and heavy at the beginning, just really there. And I just felt like, baby, as the things were going on, I made friends with a lot of people that I had relationships with or sexual history with, um, and my current partner at the time didn't agree with it, and he thought that it was unhealthy to have those relationships, so I consented, and I decided to exile those people out of my life, and now we've been on and off for the last couple of weeks, uh, mostly because he constantly thinks that any person that I'm talking to thinks that I'm sleeping with them or that I have some kind of sexual history with them so it's pretty much left me to not have any friends and I'm fallen, I've, I'm in love with this person, head over heels I just really I'm not sure what to do I know he listens to your podcast and I really just want to have him hear some advice too about what's going on in our relationship or the lack thereof um, and insults to he's friends with somebody that when we were on a break he ended up making out with that person a couple times, expressed interest in possibly dating this person and despite me never cheating on him continues hanging out with this person and I feel like there's a double standard and I just want to kind of get your advice and so confused and I don't understand what to do and just feel like I'm never going to be loved by somebody as much as I felt loved by him.
2: This delicious bottle of poison has given me such a warm feeling inside. I don't think there's anything else that will ever give me such a warm feeling inside as this bottle of poison. This relationship is toxic. Your boyfriend, and I'm sorry, I apologize in advance to your boyfriend who is a listener, is an asshole. And I don't know if he knows it, but I'm going to say it to you and he's going to overhear it that everything that he's doing to you, this kind of petty controlling jealousy are the red flags of an abusive relationship and an, and an, abuser. And I'm not saying he's abused you physically or punched you, but he's certainly beating you up emotionally and isolating you. That's what this is shit is about. Isolating you, cutting you off from your friends, from your exes, some of whom became your friends. And then after pressuring you to cut off all contact with your exes, some of whom became your friends, which is so common in gay land because there aren't that many of us that we can't engage in that dumb shit. Straight people thing of cutting people out of your life forever. When you break up, once he succeeded in pressuring you to, to cut off all these people, he then starts pressuring you to have no contact with any other male humans at all because he's so crazy jealous And then, of course, double standards, he can make out with other guys, he can flirt with other guys, he can be attracted to other guys, but you aren't allowed to do that shit because there's one set of rules for the jealous controlling on the abuse spectrum guys and another set of rules for the guys and girls who are unlucky enough to date them or be conned into believing that they're loved by them. His love that gives you such a warm feeling inside is like that bottle of poison that gives you a very warm feeling inside. It comes at too high a price. You got to put the bottle of poison down before it kills you. End this relationship. Call your friends. Apologize to your friends. You will be loved by someone else with the same intensity that this person loved you. You will get that same warm feeling again from someone else. And it will not come bundled with this controlling, abusive, isolating bullshit. There are other men out there. Go date them. Yeah. You really liked him. And maybe in some demented way, he really liked you. And that so many people who are in abusive relationships can't see that they're in abusive relationships or in a relationship with someone in the abuser spectrum because there may be genuine affection there. They really like the person and people somehow are convinced That if you really like someone and on some level they really like you, that it couldn't possibly be an abusive relationship because aren't abusers assholes? Self-evidently assholes? Repulsive assholes? No. Abusers are often really charming, ingratiating, good sex, fun in bed, fun to be with 90% of the time. Otherwise, no one would ever get into a relationship with an abuser. It wouldn't be hard to extract yourself from a relationship with an abuser because nobody would be in a relationship with an abuser for more than five seconds. If they were just toxic, awful monsters raging all the time, the trick to abusers and the way they con people is that they're wonderful 95% of the time and awful 5% of the time. And you figure, hey, maybe accommodating their insecurities, cutting all my friends out of my life, isolating myself, cutting off my family. Maybe that's a price I'm willing to pay, a price of admission to be with this guy because 95% of the time he's wonderful. But here's the thing. Once you give that 5%, suddenly they're only wonderful 90% of the time and then you're giving 10%. And then they're wonderful 70% of the time and then pretty soon they're wonderful 30% of the time and the majority of your relationship is a screaming nightmare and you have no friends to fall back on. You have no people in your life left to call for support who can put it into perspective, who can say to you, oh my God, you got to get away from this guy because – your abuser or the guy you're dating who's wonderful but on the abuser spectrum has succeeded in so isolating you that you can then be their punching bag emotionally, sometimes physically, for as long as the relationship goes on. End it. Get the fuck out. It's over. If you continue to date this guy, I will come and find you and I will talk sense to you. And guy, boyfriend, listener, can't, please, A, Get into therapy and work through your jealousy and your controlling awfulness and or stop listening to this program because I don't think people who engage in the sorts of behaviors that you do, if indeed your boyfriend's characterization of them is correct, which if you're deep in denial and you can't see that you're an abuser, you're going to, of course, argue that they're incorrect. It's correct though. You need help. You need help. The guys you date deserve better than you. And you will run out of patsies. You will run out of targets. You will run out of people who are willing to put up with your shit. And you will be alone. And you will deserve to be alone. If you cannot unpick this lock, if you cannot work through, get over, and eradicate from your personality your controlling, abusive, Behavior patterns. And you can do it. I know people who've done it. I was in a relationship with a guy like you a long time ago who was just always on me, jealous. Uh, I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't all my exes were you know coming to take me back from him. He couldn't accept that they were my exes because I didn't want to be with them anymore and I wanted to be with him. And it was just this nightmare, and I go out of town for a weekend and he has sex with somebody else. And then I get in trouble because I'm not mad enough. He tells me about it, and I'm like, can we have a three-way? And he, I am then being yelled at for not being jealous the way I'm supposed to be jealous. So obviously, I don't care about him. And today, he's in a very successful long-term relationship, and he's worked through this stuff and overcome it and doesn't go there anymore. And we're friends, and it's good. We're friends. We're exes, and we're friends. See, you can do that. He didn't think used should be able to do that or people should do that. Now you can do it. Even he can do it. And even his current husband can do it without him losing his mind. So you can get there. You can work through and overcome this shit. If you love this guy that you're with right now, that you're doing this horrible, these horrible things to right now, know this, you're going to lose this guy because of this. This shit in you that you need to root out is going to cost you this relationship. It is going to end this relationship. This relationship is not going to end because he's running off with an ex. This relationship is not going to end Because he doesn't want to be with you. Listen to the way he talks about you. He desperately wants to be with you. This relationship is going to end because this chunk, this part of you, is destroying this relationship. You are the one who is to blame for the failure of this relationship. Not your boyfriend who called me today. You are. This is. This part of you is. It's destroying the relationship. It is the cancer. It is the bottle of poison. Dump it out. You can do it. And it won't then destroy your next relationship. Circling back to you, caller, it's over. It's over. Don't date him. Even if he tells you he's fixed it, don't date him. You can't date him. It's done. He has to learn this lesson. The only way for him to really learn this lesson and to really overcome this is for it to cost him. You. He won't learn the lesson if you take him back. He won't learn the lesson if you stay in this relationship.
3: Dan. I'm calling because I um, am a married bisexual woman. I have a couple kids. I have a lovely husband who I adore and I've never dated or been with a woman and I really want to be. I don't want to cheat on my husband. I have no intention of doing that. But I don't know how to make this work without possibly messing up our marriage and something really, really good that I have. My question, I have two questions, is, is it possible for me to be content for the rest of my life I'm in my mid-30s without being with a woman? Well, I always wonder because it's been nagging at me for years now? And then the other question is, is how could I make this happen without disrupting our marriage too much? We've talked about threesomes and I don't know how to even find someone. I know Craigslist is an option but it, it seems a little scary to me especially with kids in the house or doing swinging, being in a swingers club or whatever. I just am looking for your advice on, do I go for this? Is it that important? And how can I explore something that I just recently realized is something that's very important to my identity that I haven't even dug into at all?
2: Is it possible to be content without ever being with a woman without ever dating a woman or having sex with a woman, I guess. Yeah, sure. Not everybody gets everything that they want. There are people out there who are single all their lives who really would rather be in a relationship and they can find contentment. They can be at peace with that. And and I encourage people to be at peace with that. Uh, so you can certainly be at peace with never getting to realize these fantasies, but it doesn't sound like you have to, Do that. It doesn't sound like you need to reconcile yourself to never doing this, never being with a woman because your husband sounds supportive. Your husband sounds like he's fine with this in game. So go out there, join a swingers club, uh, put a couple of ads up, vet people, talk to people and know that there are lots of women out there like you. God, the number of calls, the number of questions from Married women uh, in what have been up to now uh, monogamous relationships who would like to explore their bisexuality, who would like to explore sex with another woman, the numbers are staggering. There are lots of you out there. There are more bisexual women by a factor of three than there are lesbian-identified women. So you putting an ad up that just says exactly who and what you are, married for however long, husband knows I'm bi and I've never actually been with a woman and he's very supportive looking for a woman in similar circumstances to explore with who also has a supportive husband at home and maybe they can watch. You put that in an ad and you will get responses from you. You'll get responses from women who understand exactly where you're at and what you're going through. Cause it's exactly where they're at and they're going through the exact same thing. Another option of course are those swing clubs are those poly chat clubs and parties. You will meet people like you and People have these fears that if they go to swingers clubs, it's going to be some Hieronymus Bosch painting, some Bacchanal, some degrading kind of meat grinder that they're being thrown into and they're going to wind up doing things they don't want to do or they're going to be pressured. And in actuality, when you go to those places, when you go to a good organized swing club and everybody has a website and everybody gets Yelp reviews now so you can do your due diligence and check them out, you will find that there is this overarching – really hand-ringy concern for the space to feel safe for the women who are there. Because the entire swing, organized swing scene, the entire apparatus collapses if the women walk out. If women don't feel safe, it's over for everybody and so there is an effort, a sincere effort made to make sure that these swing clubs, swinger spaces, play parties, poly things are coercion and pressure free zones to the extent that is possible to ensure nobody's perfect. Nothing's perfect, right? You will meet dirtbags everywhere you go, but there is more conscious effort in these spaces to be safe, to make them safe, to emphasize consent than in most other places where people go to meet people. So an answer to your question. Yeah, you can be content all your life with never acting on this, but you don't need to reconcile yourself to that. Your husband's supportive Get out there.
1: Hi, Dan, and Tech Savvy at Risky. Um, I have a question about a topic that I have not heard discussed on any of the calls that I've listened to or the uh, the books that you've written. And uh, that has to do with um, anal fissures and sphincterotomies for gay men that engage in anal sex. You know, there's a lot of supporting of... Uh, and ass-sex in the show, but there's not a lot to talk about ass-care and how to take care of it and know the signs for when things have potentially been damaged due to some adventurous anal sex play. So I would like to hear about that, if at all possible, because I know of somebody that um, recently discovered some anal issues and had to have a sphincterotomy, and that is very disconcerting to me as a gay man.
2: Joining us by phone, Dr. V. Chu, co-founder of Capitol Hill Medical, a GLBT-focused primary care clinic here in Seattle, but also specializes in HIV medicine and transgender care. Hey, uh, Dr. Chu, thanks so much for taking a call today. Hey, Dan. So we no talk uh, thanks. We talk about anal sex a lot on the show, the guy says, and he says we don't really talk about the risk. We do talk about the risk of sexually transmitted infections a lot. We talk about Truvada a lot. We talk about uh, the importance of using condoms and gonorrhea and syphilis and all of that. But he's concerned about anal fissures, and you listen to the call, sphincterotomies? What's a sphincterotomy?
7: Well, the sphincterotomy is kind of the bugaboo of, of, of all gay men, I think, just because I think people have heard that sometimes there have been some people who had anal fissures that stuck around so long that they had to have this surgical procedure.
2: What is it? What does a sphincterotomy do? I, you, know, people, you say it's a bugaboo, and gay men have heard of it. I'm a gay man. I'm, I'm in I'm middle age, and I've been writing a sex column for a million years. I haven't heard of a sphincterotomy.
7: Oh yeah, well, so it's so it's the surgery. All right, so here's here's the thing. So most anal fissures, you're gonna they're gonna go away on their own. You don't have to do very much about them. Okay, so like the vast majority of the time.
2: And an anal fissure for those out there who don't know
7: is what? Right. So an anal fissure is a little tear in the skin of the anus. I mean, you can you imagine? You know, you you've got a lot of stuff going in, stuff going out, and if 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 the anal the ring sort of expands too quickly you can de- develop a little tear in there, all mm-hmm. right? And um, it can be really painful. It can be a little, um, you can have a little bit of um, blood. But in general, I mean, um, a lot of times when you like bottom, uh, you know, you have a large stool, you're going to have, you probably are going to have micro tears, but those heal up really quickly. But sometimes you can get a really discreet tear. And then it can be, um, it could be, be a problem because it prevents you from being able to you know, sort of defecate without pain or even like have sex. And it can really take people out of the game for a while. If it sticks around for a while, it's, a, it's it's a bad place to get one because obviously you have to use it a lot, right? The area a lot, mm-hmm. and um, it can be really aggravated by just going to the bathroom, um, and certainly by bottoming bottoming more. Um, and in, in some cases, if you don't, if they don't heal well, they become chronic and they kind of become deeper. Now, when the anal ring gets a little tear, your anal your your internal sphincter gets really angry. The internal anal sphincter is kind of like you really can't control it and it just kind of spasms and it hurts. And so the, sphincterectomy, the sphincterotomy, sphincterectomy, one of those, um, is essentially when a surgeon has to go in and they actually have to make a little nick in that little sphincter muscle, to sort of relieve the pressure. And basically that's, that's the key here. Like we're all trying to relieve the pressure of the anus,
2: but it's not getting your, it's not getting your anus removed. That's what a sphincterotomy no, 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 sounds no, no, no. like. sounds like getting your ass off.
7: Oh, it totally does. I think that's why it's a, such a scary thing, but really it's, um, it, if you've got a chronic failure going on, we're talking like months and months and months, that's just getting deeper. This is probably the only thing that's really going to work. And it actually works really well. But it's not like they remove the sphincter, even though, um, there's a small risk of, uh, incontinence. So you might, so let me back up and say that you have two sphincters, uh, in, uh, that, that are sort of the, the ones we're, the, the, the ones that matter here. Um, how do I describe the anus? Uh, how about like a, imagine like a toilet paper, tube, and at the bottom, you put a, a rubber band at the at the bottom, okay? That's the external sphincter, or excuse me, the internal one. Now put another rubber band on top of that, and that's the external mm-hmm. sphincter, all right? The external one, you can pretty much control. The internal one, you can't. That's the one that will spasm if you have like a, a bad sphincter. sphincter. Yeah. And so, so what they do is well, they'll go in and they'll like make a little nick uh, to relieve, so so it won't spasm as much. So they'll, they'll make a, lick, a nick so it can't spasm them. And uh-huh. you, you can have a little bit of incontinence, but you can still, you still get your external sphincter. So you might have to just concentrate a little bit more about it, but um uh, generally, incontinence is not thought of as a um, – um, it's not a huge risk. Maybe 5% of people okay. will have issues
2: with it. So you're not going to be shitting your pants all the time, most likely, no. 95% of cases. Most and once you're all healed up, you can still, if you're so inclined, have anal sex.
7: Here's the thing. Some, what, what I've been told is that uh, often the, the surgery, the sphincterotomy, will actually be less painful than the than having a chronic fissure. And it, it it has it's associated with like ninety six percent success rate. So, don't, you'll get back in the game within like weeks. Um, okay. is, is the idea
2: okay? So, what should people watch out for? You know, what are signs of damage to watch out for? Obviously, if you have any sort of fissure, and knowing now that it can get worse and worse and worse to this point where you might have to have the surgical intervention that can have you know a five percent chance of consequences of incontinence. Uh, what do you watch out for? And what's an early intervention if you do have so you don't get to that point in needing this operation.
7: Oh, totally. Well, well, um, like I said, fissures are really common. I think that, I think fissures they are usually pretty obvious. You know, if, if you just had a huge bowel movement or you just had a, you know, marathon bottoming session, you're going to, you're going to be sore, but, and, and that's, you can't really get around that. But a clue to you've got that you've got a fissure going on is that no matter what you do, whenever you go to the bathroom, whenever you tr- even try to bottom, you get a really, really sharp pain. Um and it's reproducible. It's not gonna like heal one time and you're gonna feel great and then it'll you know, feel terrible later. Like it's just gonna be pretty much every time you go. And there might be a little bit of blood streaking on the stool, um or on the toilet paper. But um that's your clue. And if it sticks around for a long time. How long? That yeah, we're talking I mean if, if it's gonna if it's if it's around for more than like two or four weeks I would go ahead and see your doc because that's the next step after getting a fissure that doesn't go away is not surgery very very few people need surgery um, the next step would be uh, medical therapy so you would do like uh, there are these creams that you would that the uh, we would have you apply to the area and the idea of these creams is essentially to make your ass blush like you really want to get blood to the area it, it relaxes blood vessels, gets more blood in there. And the idea is if you get more healing nutrients, uh, it'll, it'll heal better. Mm-hmm. And that's why the, some people have told, uh, have been told to take six baths, which are not like special baths. It's just taking a warm bath. The idea is like you, you kind of, can, um, with the heat is going to relax everything and you get more blood to the area. So you just sit in a hot and in, in hot water and, uh, you know, that can effectively, uh, help a fissure as well. So the idea is to, yeah to get blood to the area and reduce the spasming, relax the whole area. And usually that's going to be enough. I mean, we're talking like, just, you know, very few, very few people actually end up needing the big bugaboo sphincterotomy. Thing.
2: And lay off the butt sex. You can't lay off the defecation. Of course you can't start coughing up shit, but if you have a painful fissure and you don't want it to get worse, or you just don't want to suffer. Don't have anal.
7: Yeah. You know, that's, and that's, that's why I hear about it so much you know, most of my practice game and and that's why fissure is such a problem is because it can take such a long time to heal that it's like, you know, you really want to get back into the game. This is really causing relationship problems because you can't bottom. Um, And it's, it's uh it can be really, really frustrating. So.
2: But there's oral, um, there's mutual masturbation, there's fantasy, (laughs) there's you get to top for a while. Absolutely. There are, there are other things that you can do. This can, I mean, you can look at this as, oh, a terrible thing because it's knocking out, yeah, knocking you out of your usual routine sexually, but sometimes it's a good thing to be knocked out of your routine sexually. There oh, can yeah. Be, there can be a silver lining to this anal fissure.
7: Totally. Explore other things. Uh, but the most important thing is probably just prevention, right? I think people have listened to your show and they know that, you know, you got to use tons of lube. you got to slow down. I think if the top, you really, it's in your best interest to keep the bottoms of Seattle really, you know ready to go and happy. And so you really got to be a good top. You got to go slow. You got to get feedback. And this is another good
2: good reason why you don't want to bottom when you're completely fucked up on drugs or alcohol, because that's when people also get dehydrated and you don't want to be dehydrated. You want to be moist everywhere, but you also don't, you want to have the ability to assess whether it's painful and whether you are ready and whether you're going too far too fast Now, just a a quick question for everyone out there who's been to Tumblr and seen the pornography. You know, you're saying if somebody takes a large – you know, you have a large bowel movement or, you know, you have a marathon bottoming session, you could get a fissure. And you go to Tumblr and you see people putting traffic cones in their asses. How are these people not – dying of fissures, fatal they're listening fissures.
7: To your, they're they're listening to your advice and they're <laughs> taking their time and they're using lots of lube. How much, how much time I do go.
2: you have to take to get a and, traffic cone in your <laughs> house? That would take like decades.
7: You should know this by now.
2: I don't um, know it. I, some things I just marvel at and I don't look
7: into because I kind of don't want to know. Well, I wouldn't expect people to go from zero to, you know, 60 in one second kind of thing. Um, from pinky to traffic it, again, cone in one second. Ex- exactly. You're not going to go from, you know, finger to traffic cone, you know, in a, in a session, right? And I think that's what the expectation should be. Maybe some people can, and and the only way you're going to know is if you get a lot of feedback, right? right? How's it going? Is this painful? And I think that's the most important thing. Honestly, you really want to avoid getting a fission in the first place. They can be really frustrating. Yes. With this, these crazy surgeries out there, but they're, they're usually not for anyone. They're usually for the few people who have chronic fissures that never, ever go away. And then actually, in all the cases that I've seen uh, for patients who needed one, um, they were they were back in the game within, I would say, several weeks, and, and it was all fine.
2: So the caller asks, you know, why is this topic so seldom discussed or rarely discussed? Why don't we hear about it? And it's because the risk of this happening is so, so low. and uh, And I also think that there's almost a control on it. Like you get an anal fissure, and it's painful, so you kind of have to stop bottoming oh, for a yeah. while. You, it, and,
7: you're not in a place that you're jumping at it, no.
2: Right, so so there's it built into this injury is uh, you know a potential early corrective for it getting worse, which is you're just not going to be going for it while you've got a fissure. And that's going to give your butt time to recover and bounce back and heal. One last question that I'm sure people sure. have. So you have this cut, it's on your sphincter, and moving across that sphincter is a whole lot of fecal matter. Moving across yeah. that cut are people at risk for infections from bacteria that are in
7: their, that's in their shed
2: during, while they have a seizure?
7: Not at all. No. You know, you, you, your body fights off bacteria all the time. It's part of the reason it's actually in the gut. It's very good at it. Um, And so even though you have a little cut, it's kind of like when you get a cut in your skin, you don't always get crazy, you know, flesh-eating It's because your body can deal with it. Mm -hmm. And so um, in general, uh, even actually, even when you do a sphincterotomy, you you generally don't need antibiotics for it. Um, Your body's that good at dealing with the infection. So um, I think the most important part when talking about fecal matters is one of the things you can do for a fissure is basically take, Bulking stoolage is basically just eat more fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do that, your stools gonna be more well formed. They're a little softer, a little wetter, so they're a little um, less traumatic, mm-hmm. and it'll have, you know hasten healing. And you should, an issue. if you're a if
2: you're regular anal bottom, uh, you know if anal sex is something you enjoy. Uh, uh, if you're verse, you should be thinking about your diet and getting a lot of fiber anyway because you want you want to be re- you want to be regular because then you know when you're empty and good to go.
7: I do a lot of primary care for gay men, and I feel I tell them that fiber really is their best friend. Like, if you really want to be able to have that ability, that skill to be spontaneous, you want all your drops to, to be clean. You want to be ready to go whenever you want to go. Fiber is the key there. Um, if you ever wonder how some of these people do it, it's probably fiber.
2: Doctor Vichu, co-founder of Capital Medical, GLBT-focused primary care clinic, also specializes in HIV medicine and transgender care. Thank you so much for uh, absolutely f- fielding this awkward question for us and come back.
7: Absolutely.
8: Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old woman, straight, living on the East Coast, and I've been with my boyfriend for 10 and a half years. We're very happy together, but the one issue that we're divided on is whether or not we're going to get married. And I'm wondering if, long-term, this is something I should be concerned about. When we first would talk about marriage and maybe the first five, six years of our relationship, he would always say that he didn't want to get married and he didn't believe in marriage as an institution, Um, In more recent years, when I ask him about it, he says, sometimes he thinks about it and he assures me that he wants to be with me for life, but he doesn't feel the need to get married and often says, if it isn't broke, why fix it? Um, Our relationship itself is absolutely amazing. We have a very, very satisfying and passionate sex life that has lasted all 10 years. We have a lot of shared interests. We live well together. A few years ago when we had some uh, issues coming up, we went to therapy and we learned how to communicate better. And we both are very invested in the relationship and each other. He's generous. He's kind. He's trustworthy. We're in a monogamous, committed relationship that is extremely satisfying. But I want to get married and he pretty much doesn't. Um, I've thought of different things like maybe I should propose to him, but I don't feel certain that he'd say yes and I don't want to be at that crossroads. Um, A lot of other women tell me things like, you should just give him an ultimatum. You've been together this long and he's not married. You should leave him. But I'm happy in the relationship and I don't want to do anything like an ultimatum because were he to marry me under that circumstance, I feel like it would be forced. Um, I try to think about why do I want to get married Is it because I'm just excited about the idea of having a wedding? I'm a creative person, an artist, and a costumer, and so much of my wedding would be a project that I could do, and that's exciting. But really, I think I do want to be married to him. I want the security that comes with marriage, um, knowing where we stand as we get older, as our families get older, what our legal and medical rights are in relation to each other. So I feel like this relationship is like a marriage to me, and we're both equally committed to it. Yet legally and in the eyes of society, he's just my boyfriend. We've been together 10 and a half years. What am I going to have a boyfriend after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? I really don't know what to do.
2: I have a hunch. I have a hunch about your boyfriend of 10.5 years, uh, hesitation to marry. If your boyfriend is anything like my boyfriend, Terry, now husband, Terry, the prospect of being at the center of an exciting wedding show The prospect of an art-directed Broadway floor show of your love may be what gives him pause. You know, I don't want to make this about gender. There are certainly guys out there who are excited about having a big wedding when they grow up. There are certainly women out there who want a quick service at City Hall without a lot of hoopla. But there are a lot more women in the world who are excited about the Broadway floor show of their love than there are guys in the world. And not all guys in the world are sort of up for the whole fucking trial of a wedding, up for the big production and the to-do and the costumes and the sets and the performance of it. You might want to start there when you have this conversation about marriage next time, not with this assumption that if you guys do get married, you're going to have to put the next two years of your lives on hold As you plan every last detail and art direct every last detail of this, as you invite people from all four corners of the earth to come and watch the big show, put it on the table that maybe you could be married without having a big fucking to do about it, without turning it into a touring production of Oklahoma or something. Maybe a quick service downtown and a bottle of champagne with a couple of friends at a restaurant when it's over. Maybe that's what he would like to do. Maybe that's what he would be more comfortable with. There's also common law marriage. If you've been together for 10 years, depending on what state you live in, just regarding each other as husband and wife and describing your relationship that way makes it a marriage. You don't have to do fucking anything except live together as a married couple, regard each other as spouses and tell other people that that's who you are and what you're doing. You can avoid the whole show, but you got to Google which states in which common law marriages are legal and recognized. Uh, common law marriage uh, that's legal and recognized in one state because of the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution is legally recognized in all 50 states. I just don't have a list of the states in front of me. And if you don't live in one of those states, it's irrelevant. That said, if you want to be married and if he doesn't, this gets into price of admission ultimatum territory. Are you willing – to end this relationship if he doesn't marry you? Can you look him in the eye and say, marry me or it's over to keep me. You must marry me. It's price of admission. You have to pay to be with me. And then he gets to decide, am I willing to pay this price of admission? But he can look at you and say, no wedding, no marriage is the price of admission that you have to pay to be with me. And then it's chicken. And you guys are playing chicken and who's going to blink or jump first. Who's going to pay the price of admission? Just have it out. You need to have this conversation with him. Circling back to my hunch, though, I suspect if every time you've ever talked about this and you've fantasized aloud about having a wedding, there have been rehearsal dinners and costumes for everyone involved and flower girls and ring-bearing dogs and him arriving on a horse and your dad flying in in a hot air balloon and a big church and a giant reception and, and tens of thousands of dollars disappeared in a day, that might be why he's... Not there.
3: Hey, Dan. This is just another suggestion for the guy on episode 457, whose girlfriend was very insecure about how her vagina looked and wouldn't let him look at it. She might try reading some erotica, focused specifically on sort of female pleasure and sort of a guy really loving the look, smell, and taste of her pussy kind of without the visual getting in the way, it kind of potentially could help her kind of reconceptualize how she feels about it without, uh, you know, just sort of being <laughs> overwhelmed by the imagery of, of say, looking at porn or, or uh, trying to get comfortable with it from a visual sense. She could just get comfortable with it from a sexy, imagined sense. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the man whose girlfriend hated the way her vagina looked, which was super sad. And I think a lot of women go through. And I actually had some counterintuitive advice for him. Um, You kind of obliquely suggested this, but I think he should just go with kind of a male arrogance and like thinking about his own needs and really go for the, this is for my pleasure angle. And the reason I think that's going to work is like, if he goes for, you're so beautiful. This is for your pleasure. She's going to be suspicious that he's just doing it for her. Whereas if he goes for, this is such a turn on for me, babe. Like your vagina is so beautiful. and like, this is what I really want to do. I just, it turns me on so much to go down on you. Then I just have a feeling she's going to give in way more. If he makes it seem selfishly about him. And then once he does go down on her, it's going to open up that door and it's going to feel so good for her that it is going to start to be about her. And she's just going to totally get over it. Hi, Dan. I just wanted to leave a message for the guy whose girlfriend is insecure about her vagina. I've been there in some way. Uh, My nipples are kind of large. And when I was a freshman in college, I slept with an old friend. And that little asshole told all his little friends about my nipples. And later they asked me if it was true that I had pizza tits or pancake tits. I don't even remember, but it messed with my head and then soon after I dated a guy who couldn't get it up. So I just want him to know that whatever his girlfriend is shutting down about it's no doubt something in her history and it took for me uh dating a guy long term who was very positive and kept telling me how pretty and sexy I was to bring me out of my shell. And now he's my husband, and he gets to play with my anytime he wants.
2: And we're going to leave it there. We have a brand new phone number here at the Savage Lovecast. The old one still works, but we want you to use this one from now on. If you have a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz at 206-302-2064. That number again, 206-302-2064. Hump, my amateur porn film festival, is coming to Brooklyn, New York, in August on the 28th and 29th. Then in September, Hump goes to Madison, Wisconsin, Bend, Oregon, Vancouver, BC, Austin, Texas, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. Go to humptour.com for info about dates and to buy tickets, and to learn how you can make and submit a film for Hump 2015, the festival coming up here in Seattle and Portland. Go to humptour.com, click on Submit. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Taking a quick look at Twitter, Yaakov Mikhail tweets obsessed with at Fake Dan Savage podcast. Took long enough, but I'm here. I'm queer, and I cannot stop listening to the Savage Lovecast. Welcome to the Savage Lovecast, Yaakov. We are happy to have you. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy, we will all be back at you next week. with Another installment of the Savage Lovecast, which has a brand new phone number 206-302-2064. Give us a call. Talk to you next week.